we can begin. I just say for the internet audience, in case some of that is not there, uh, there will be no class on the 4th because of our inability to compete with snow, sun, rain, holidays, and the NFL. So, Okay, so we are now at January the 28th. 2018 lecture discussion number nine on the book of Joel. And though we have many avenues before us because of all of the materials that we've accumulated over the past, past nine weeks or so, we, they're all available to pursue today and they create a terrific divergency for me. I could choose literally any direction to go. And the majority of the subjects that I have to choose from that are on the dark docket are interesting. And some might even say fun and entertaining and mirthful. Uh, in other words, a welcome departure from the typical cliffside lecture, which is why we won't be doing any of those today. <laughs> We're staying the course. i got to protect this cliffside brand Slow, cold slog through deep, wet sand every Sunday. Twenty-five years of driving the visitor away. Uh, no exceptions. So today, at least uh, first, uh, we shall attempt to demystify Joel 3, through, uh, 3, 1 through 8. So that's where we are today for those of you who try to follow along. You can read that while I keep moving. And Joel 3 through... <laughs> Joel 3, 1 through 8, in my opinion, remains mostly unsolved. I have not read a commentary that has demystified it. And much have... Much has been written on Joel 3, 1 through 8. I just stopped at 8 all the way through the end of chapter 3, actually. Joel 3 typically has, in my opinion, uh, it, 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 again, it, it just has not been properly evaluated or what the word I would say to you that would make the most sense. I don't believe it's ever been correctly interpreted. So we're going to try to see why that might be the case. And there's much has been written on Joel uh, 3. There's no shortage of sentiment, but large gaps still remain. Obviously, there is more to Joel 3 than has been unveiled. At the least, the questions need to be acknowledged. I don't ever find people attempting to even ask the questions that Joel 3 raises, and perhaps doing so will lead to some clarity. That is, after all, my preferred course, as you know. And I submit it to be the most effective Method. It is a cooperative system. Participation is demanded. The way I do it requires you, you, I can't force you, obviously, you have free will, but it requires you to participate. Whether you realize it or not. Okay, off we go. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to deal with it in our usual system. My grandchildren appear to be, uh, what's the word? Poorly parented, yes. Where did, he, where did he learn to be this bad at parenting? 
from his mother. That's the answer. Absolutely. Oh, she doesn't ever listen. Okay, she always listens. But I got a head start. I know it's coming, so I know when to hide. <laughs> okay, Joel 3. This may be the last you've seen for me for quite some while. Uh, I've always I've always wanted somebody to record the sermon. I mean, the uh, the uh, this, the funeral service for my benefit. Here we go. For behold. Get in the habit when you see that behold man stop sign in those days and at that time. We've spent a lot of time talking about time because God puts time. He made time. He keeps time. In those days, at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations. Now, that word really is more accurately uh, translated Gentiles. I will also gather all Gentiles and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, actually, whom they have scattered among the Gentiles. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the coast of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your head. Because you have taken my precious, let me get this perfect, my precious good things. That's what it says. Your Bible may have my silver and gold. But it's literally my precious good things. And have carried into your temple my precious good things. Also, the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Now this is a tremendously difficult passage. Again, as I started in the introduction, I said I don't believe it's been solved. And it becomes obvious why that's the case, I think, as we go through it. As is usually prudent when dealing with difficult passages like this, making a list of the applicable pieces is is helpful, in my view. Otherwise, known as list makers, going to list. So that behold. What is going to follow this behold is amazing. Of its seminal, something extraordinary, critically important comes next in those days and at that time. God is releasing information that is vital. Expect to find Jesus Christ somewhere. For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Jerusalem and Judah, I will gather all Gentiles and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Find Christ. 
In those days and at that time. Days. Time. What days are they? What time is it? When does this happen? Solve that, you go a long way. Mostly, I am going to, I'll say this again, it makes people mad when I do, but there's, it's okay. It's probably my most effective, valuable idea that I can come up with is making people mad. I never see anyone get this right. They never get days and time right. They don't know what day and they don't know what time. And then that almost completely pollutes everything that they consider after that. I, as you know, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum had a great impact on me. And the one thing that he did in Joel 3 that was very valuable was get the right day and the right time. He's almost alone. What days are these? What time is it? When I, that's God, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. So he will bring back the captives. Where were the Jewish captives? How did they get where they were? Who took them? Why were they taken or abducted? Notice there's an abduction theme in Scripture. The bride of Christ is abducted, right? Somebody came and took the people of Israel, the Judah and Jerusalem, and put them someplace, and God brings them back. How does he do that? I will also say, he says, I will also gather... Abduct, if you will, bring back, if you will, the Gentiles. And he's going to gather them. He's going to bring them back. And the question becomes, why is God doing this? Say Christ. Why is Christ doing it? Who is Jehoshaphat? And how does he fit in here? Because that clearly is a a clue. What is Jehoshaphat's Haphat's connection to all of this? And then E. I will enter into judgment with them there. The judgment? With them there. So he's got a place. And there's a them. Why there? Why this place? Where is this place? What else has happened at this place? Obviously, this is a place where Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, John 1, 3, has chosen. He's chosen this place. He could choose any place, but he didn't. He picked this one where he's going to bring all the Gentiles, and there's judgment here. Nothing was made without Christ. All that was made 
Nothing was made. That was made without Christ. And he is choosing this place. He is the judge of all things, John 5, 22, Daniel 7, 9 through 11, through 10, 7, 11. This is a judging place. So immediately ask why. Because, he says, because, on account of, of my people, my heritage, Israel. God says that about the Jews. My people, my heritage, Israel. Obviously, Israel is the issue here. What specifically about Israel is the determinant? The Gentiles are being judged based on Israel. Israel is the factor. It is the key ingredient for the judgment. The occasion is judgment. It's traceable to this cause that is Israel. So we solve, why does this happen? That's going to help us figure out, when does it happen? So once you recognize the determinant, then you can trace it to the cause. Now, to repeat the question from uh, number E back here, this judgment uh, uh, issue. Where else has the judge of all things convened his court and he has rendered judgment? Where else in the Bible has it happened? Because immediately you're going to find where else Christ has judged someone and ask, is this the same exact place? Now, we have judgment in heaven. We have judgment on earth. Has he put it all in the same place? And he's judging who? He's going to bring back the Jews. Then he's going to gather the Gentiles. And it's going to be judgment of the Gentiles based on something to do with Israel. Where has he judged Gentiles? Okay, so far so good, I hope. They have, when they have scattered among the Gentiles, whom they have scattered. So I have, somebody has scattered the Jews amongst the Gentiles. Who scattered them? When did they scatter them? What's their meaning? What's their method? What's their plan? Why did they scatter them? Who has scattered the Jews? Who is the they in this uh, in this sentence? In this verse, why did they scatter the Jews? When did they scatter the Jews? I keep repeating this. Is this the Babylonian diaspora? Which is what most commentators conclude. I'm going to answer that. No. How do I know it's not? I have the judgment of the Gentiles by Christ. That is not an attribute or a characteristic of the diaspora. So far, so good. How is it then that so many say otherwise? In fact, I'm going to tell you, it would be very difficult for you to find a commentator that doesn't say it's the Babylonian diaspora. 
If it's not the diaspora, and it's not, then what is this? If God has not scattered the Jews, and he has not, who did scatter them? And then why did they scatter them? H. He says, they have also divided up my land. They divided up my land. Who is so bold that they would divide up the land of God? Why would they divide up the land of God? And again, who is the they? How many pieces has God's land been parceled into? Who got what? Biggest question, who got Jerusalem? Who wants Jerusalem? Why do they want Jerusalem? Do they even know why they want Jerusalem? I think that actually is something that you would answer no. They don't know why they want it. They just know that they want it. They have no idea what it means or what what has happened in Jerusalem. See, that's the question that you've heard me ask many, many times. What has happened in Jerusalem? You can find Melchizedek, Genesis 13 and 14. You can deal with Sodom, where again, Melchizedek, who is Christ himself, he is the king of peace. He is the high priest and king simultaneously. That makes him Christ. Christ is the only one who can have both those titles. And uh, he is the king of, of peace or Jerusalem. What has happened in Jerusalem? When did it happen first? Where's the first thing that happened in Jerusalem? Why this battle over Jerusalem? What was Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem? Is probably the best way to put that. It became Jerusalem when? As far as you will note that it, uh, you, again, I brought up Melchizedek, but you will see it primarily in Genesis 22 where Abraham named it Jehovah Jireh Salam. Jerusalem. This is the place where he sacrificed Isaac. This is the place that Christ made sure that his crucifixion took Christ wanted to replicate two things, if you will. Actually, they were in these positions because this is where Christ has chosen. So you don't want to get upside down in that. So God has chosen this place, and then these other things happened here to lead you to understand why God chose to be crucified right here. He put the skull of Goliath here. He put himself, the base of his cross, on top of Goliath's skull. That is what he did. Why did he put Goliath's skull here? Goliath is a type of antichrist. He has Isaac. This is the place where Isaac's, um, I don't know what to call it, symbolic, typological, um, dramatic, Theodicy, he was never going to be sacrificed. It was the place that Abraham was to take Isaac, portraying the father and the son of the triune Godhead, asked where the Holy Spirit was. This is the place where the ram is in the thicket. Why this place? This is named Jehovah Jireh Salam. When they take Jerusalem, do they know any of that? 
That's the question. They want it. Do they even know why they want it? I. They cast lots. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? They cast lots for my people. My people, he says. Again, who is the they? Did you see that? The cap fell off of the pen. Did you notice it did not hit the ground? Because lightning fast, wham, snapped it right out of the air. Proof. That is incredible. How old is this guy really? I'll talk about that in a minute. (laughs) They have cast lots for my people. Who's doing that? Why the casting lots? It doesn't make any sense. And clearly this will dispatch us to John 19, 23 through 24 and Psalm 22, 18. Let's go ahead and read John really fast because... um, Again, as I've tried to say, and I'll repeat it as much as I can, there isn't any conclusions here. There's no agreement as to what this means. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. So there's a division there. In the sense, they parceled it out, right? Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from top in one piece. It was amazing. They had never seen anything like it. Where did this tunic come from? It's Christ. Where did he make it? When did he make it? Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from top in one piece. They said, therefore, amongst themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Who for whose it shall be that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them and my clothing. They cast lots So we have this casting of lots now in Joel 3, which takes us to John 19, 23 through 24 and Isaiah, I'm sorry, and uh, Psalms 22, 18. (coughs) So the Jews, the people, and Christ himself are subjected to the casting of lots. In this case, Christ's garments. With the Jews, it's them. So there's a relationship between the Jewish people and the garment of God. The garment of God was not divided or the the mantle, the land will be divided, the people will be cast lots for. So what is the meaning of all of this? What is this dividing, casting lots theme that is in Scripture? How does it apply to these two? Uh, apparently, they don't seem to be uh, um, anywhere near s- s- the same. They seem to be significantly different, but they can't be. So how do they reconnect with one another? How do they... Where is the congruency here? And obviously, with the I am himself, Christ himself, the I am, he made certain that the casting lots was going to be part of his crucifixion. And everyone goes back to Psalm 22, 18. They never go back to Joel 3. And if you miss Joel 3, you don't understand John 19, 23 through 24, in my view. What is the lesson of the casting of lots, the meaning of it? Obviously, 
it must contain, because he put it in his crucifixion, it must contain truths that we can't imagine. Substantial, extraordinary importance. How does it fit? And then it gets more difficult. This was I. I don't know if you can see that that's I right there because I put they back in trying to make sure you understood, trying to figure out who they is. Who's the they? Why doesn't God say Fred so that we know who it is? He doesn't. He makes you figure it out. How come I get it all the time? Is you know Why doesn't God just make this easy for me? Usually they leave off the me. Because when you say, why doesn't God do it for me? It sounds really disrespectful, doesn't it? How about almost blasphemous? Why would you eat a Tide Pod? (laughs) What's wrong with you? It's got something to do with me, doesn't it? They do it for the me. And then they put it on me face. It's all me. We, this generation is so self-focused, it is stupidly so. <sighs> Having, have given a boy, have given a boy for a harlot. I will tell you that that, I don't believe. It uh, it might be the most inexplicable of all of Joel 3. Giving a boy for a harlot makes no sense at all. But it makes no sense at all. That is fantastic. That means something really, a great treasure is there. As is always the case, opinions abound universally. Mostly they center around the selling of Jewish children into slavery. They, they say this is slavery. And you'll find the majority of commentators assign Joel 3.3 to the, again, to the Babylonian invasion. And they say this is what happened in the Babylonian invasion because of slavery. We bought and we sold people for slavery. But this is problematic. This is, they say, the selling of Jewish children or the enslavement of the surviving Jewish children after uh, Jerusalem and Israel is overrun. I don't think that can work. I don't think it can be defended. It's my position that Joel 3, 1 through 21, because that's what it really is, it's the whole chapter, we're just dealing with the first eight, is in the context and it adheres to the order established in Joel chapter 2. Do you remember Joel chapter 2? What was Joel chapter 2 all about? It was about locusts and scorpions. Joel chapter 2, if you remember, is Revelation 9. Revelation 9 is inside of the tribulation. There's the three woes. Woe, woe, woe your boat. Thanks for laughing. That's, I keep pushing that joke. Keeps working on two people. It's their fault. It's the suspension of physical death. It's the locusts, the scorpions from the abyss, from beneath the antediluvian Euphrates River. Therefore, what would Joel 3 be? Logically. 
If Joel 2 is Revelation 9, what would Joel 3 be? It would follow, wouldn't it? It would be likewise tribulational. It's judgment. It's the assembly of the courtroom. It's the defendant's where would it be? I'm going to tell you that Joel 3, if Joel, if Joel 2 is the tribulational, in the, inside of the tribulation, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling a little bit, where would Joel 3 be? This is Joel 2. Joel 3 would be after the tribulation. What's your choices? 75 day interval or the 1000 year millennial rule? Your choices, I think, are very limited. I'm I'm going to make the case that Joel 3 is inside the 75-day interval. It's the sheep and the goats of Matthew 25, 31 through 46, which raises the most difficult of the arduous questions. Why would anyone be concerned with capturing a defeated enemy right here? We're in the campaign of Armageddon, if I'm correct. Duh! This is the civilian population. Who is coming to kill the Jews at the end of the tribulation in the campaign for Armageddon, which is an eight-stage campaign? And you might think that I'm going to be arguing against my Joel 3, Revelation 9 position, but I'm not. I'm going a little further than hopefully you were expecting. The children and the, the... So somebody's taking the civilian population, the children, and selling them into slavery. That's what they think. That's what they say, having given a boy to a harlot. Why does a prostitute want a boy? How old's the boy? In the tribulation, at the time of the concluding of the tribulation, I have a prostitute, a harlot out there that wants a boy. For what? You'd think there'd be more, you'd expect more pressing concerns, wouldn't you? That would have precedence. What else is going on now? I got seven bowls, loathsome sores, the seas becoming thick, blood thick. Every living sea creature dies. The rivers also become blood as well. Mankind is scorched. Real climate change. Not anthropogenic. Anthropogenic climate change. Godpogenic. Not a word. I should, I should send that to all the people that produce revenue for us and say, what's, 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 uh, what do we call that? Patent that word? Get some kind of copyright, godpogenic. I don't think I've ever heard it before. I amuse myself. Be careful. Okay. Darkness. I got, I got mankind scorched. I got darkness, a full of darkness. The Antichrist kingdom is in blinding darkness. Ask why God does that. Their tongues are, they're gnawing their tongues because of the pain. The Euphrates withers. And so I've got tremendous now pressure on the Antichrist, pushing him and his army to vacate Babylon. That's what God's doing and moving him. He wants to move him because he's going to get him hit from behind from the Assyrians. 
Among other things. Lastly, I have the seventh bowl, the strongest earthquake. We just had a 7.9 here in Anchorage. All of us slept through it, for those of you on the Internet. We went, oh, it's only a 7.9. Let me tell you something. I went through the 9.2 that lasted over five minutes, 1964. That is so different, you never forget it. I woke up and went, oh, this is nothing. You can tell immediately it's nothing if you've gone through that 64. The sound is different. And it doesn't last, it better, you know, it, it just built, it was amazing. I've said that before. So I, I went, oh, must be about a 8.2 or something. It's nothing, nothing to worry about. Go back to bed. The dogs didn't even move. They know better. Anyway. The strongest earthquake to this point in human history. What happens? The islands and the mountains are gone. Great hail rocks fall on mankind. It's my view that ducking falling rocks from heaven would be a priority over a harlot getting a boy. This does not seem to be the time to initiate a slave trade business. So how does this fit What's the economic incentive for this? Is there any economic incentive? There can't be any economic. Is there even an economy? So why does the harlot want a boy? Hey, give me the boy. How are the bank's holding up, you think? No islands, no mountains. Rocks falling on them. Hail means rocks. Did I say how the bank's holding up? Holding up banks? Gosh, that's, that is hilarity. Just, you can't pay for this. I mean, this is too expensive. Okay, ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. Why does a harlot want a Jewish male child in the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, of all the times she wants a Jewish child male. The Jewish girl is sold for wine. Is that K? No. Girl for wine. So somebody... Once wine and a harlot. And he's willing to give children to get it. That's all that'll work. No goats, no chickens, no canned food, no Tide Pods, no iPhones. It'll be a great day. No iPhones, no video games. People actually learn to do stuff. It's barely a joke. It's the tribulation. A Jewish girl is sold for wine. Who makes this trade? These are the these are the armies. This is the army that takes Israel, or if you will, Jerusalem. And they got children, and they can trade those children. They're like, that's the economy. That's currency. So get to work thinking that through. Okay. Now they're going to retaliate against God. He, he, it's almost a rhetorical question. 
Will you retaliate against me? God asked them. What's the obvious question there? How would they retaliate against God? How do you go about, I'm going to retaliate against God. Why would they retaliate against God? The implication is, is that God says, are you going to retaliate against me? What's God doing to them? He's killing them. He's really accurate with rocks. Their islands have been sunk, leading them to ask or be asked, how long can you tread water? Imagine being on an island that sinks and they're going to retaliate. They're giving Jewish children to harlots. They're giving boys, they're giving girls for wine. How much wine? Who had the wine? What are they doing with the children? And they're going to kill Jews. And this, as you know, is the sole focus for Satan and his seed, his son, if you will, the Antichrist. And God says, because you have taken my precious good things... My precious good things. You have carried into your temples my precious good things. Why would they take God's precious good things into their temples? What will they do with God's precious good things in their temple? Again, many of your Bibles have my silver and gold and my prized possessions. Prized possessions I might accept, but most people assume that God likes gold and silver and ornate uh, furniture. And that's what he's talking about now. Those things are types of Christ. uh, And in that sense, they are prized possessions. But he calls them my precious good things. And knowing that helps you tremendously understand that. What then is precious to God? Remember, this is the tribulation. What does God call good? as well as precious, and a thing. It's a thing. We're at the ending of the tribulation. We're in the campaign of Armageddon. What would qualify as precious good things at this time? What else is worth anything at this time? What do you have of any value at this time? Notice also uh, verse 6. Uh, also, the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Is that a new category? No, that's all here. That's the people. We're back at Melchizedek, Satan, and Abraham. What was valuable to Melchizedek? Satan said, you take the money, I'll take the people. And Abraham looks back at Satan and says, no, I'll take the people. Never put yourself in a position in Scripture where you have God taking the money. So I have the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Why that distinction? What is the difference between the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem? Why does God differentiate? Why does God apply a demarcation? What's the difference? 
What is different from the people of Jerusalem with respect to the people of, Ju- of, Ju- of Judah? And now M, notice my list, didn't follow very closely. You have sold, you have sold to the Greeks, the, his people sold to the Greeks. Again, why? Who, who was you in that sentence? Tyre, Sidon, Philistia? Why them? Why are they selling the Jews to the Greeks? Why do the Greeks want the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem? How much did they pay? Again, what currency could there possibly be? What did I get? Why is it that Jews are wanted so much? Jewish blood, Jewish kids, Jewish people. Remember, God says, woe, woe to pregnant women. Pregnant Jewish women, woe. Does that have a relationship here? What functions is currency with falling rocks everywhere and islands and sinking mountains? How does an island sink? What's the process? Explain the geological repercussions there. What must take place to sink an island? How does it drop below sea level? Does sea level rise or does the island sink? The Bible says the island sinks. Well, maybe it's trying to say the sea level rose. You decide. Anyway, hopefully there's your list. That is a reasonable start. You thought I would answer those questions today, didn't you? Of course not. If I do, I'll never see you again. That's how it works. But honestly, you can do that. That's the point of it. You don't even realize that you're answering the questions as I'm asking them. That's the reason I asked them, is to get you to start answering them. Uh, And you can do it. So now we're going to go on to something funner. You would be wise to be suspicious. Funner is, of course, a relative term. I happened to make time recently to review the comments affixed to the Cliffside UFACE videos. I go to UFACE to see, we have a UFACE channel, is that correct? Okay. Somebody that may not be Dave uh, indicated that we have a UFACE channel. I know that we do, I'm just being disrespectful. Uh, but I went to see just what comments have come. Sometimes there's some wonderful hate mail there. And I like those, and I want to find them, and uh, that seems to be the only thing that cheers me up. But I, I resist doing this typically because it's painful. Watching myself is disturbing. I, I just go, oh my goodness! I, I, I look at this. Who is this ranting idiot? <laughs> he looks 90 years old. I mean, he looks terrible. I was, uh, I had a, I have to. Uh, I have a hopper, a very large hopper for shooting texture. If you fill it up, it weighs over 100 pounds. And I've got it. I'm on a ladder, and I'm, I've got a powerful compressor that will shoot texture 75 feet into the neighbor's house. It's fantastic. So I'm blasting away, and it's hitting the wall and coming back on me. And Then I'm shooting the dogs. And I'm just, you know... 
enjoying my texture, but my arms are starting to fail because I'm old and I'm on a ladder and I start to sweat and I see myself in the mirror because there's a big mirror in a hutch over there and instantly I shot the mirror because I looked, I looked a hundred years old. I, I just, and so that when I watch myself, I go, gosh, that is an old man. Lose some weight. I'm yelling at the Facebook or FaceTube or whatever it is, YouTube. Corpulent old balding man. Buy some clothes. Get a haircut. Gosh, you are, you are a mess. So I don't like to watch any of that and I don't like to look because of that. I hardly do it. But I thought, well, I'll do it because I noticed a few questions a while back that were valuable. And I, I, supper day brought to me that one of the guys said, why does God still hide from us or hide from you? And I didn't catch the word still. And, and that's partly what motivated me. That's an excellent question. The person that wrote that didn't understand uh, the error in his thought process there. That word still is very important. If he had recognized the importance of still, and I'll get to it in the coming weeks, I don't have time today, I think it might have affected him. I hope it will when I, I introduce that subject. Anyway, I noticed a question left by um, Think Spot. That's how he identifies him. And I believe that that's Joe from Seattle. Hi, Joe from Seattle. And it deserves attention. And Joe consistently raises contemplative observations, as everyone does. I'm astonished at the audience that uh, we generate. Uh, it's amazing. You folks are just amazing. Or weird. You go either way. Anyway, he has contemplative observations and or commentary that, um, well, he's skeptical skeptical as he should be of Supper Dave's existence and he's very funny and they're valuable additions to our tube face channel and Joe's uh, latest missive essentially dealt with Satan's intrusion into the structure of the garden which you know is a subject we've talked about many times but uh, I thought okay this is worth just pounding away at just for a few minutes because it's so much fun look at your faces they're all smiling. Joe, okay, none. Not one. Okay, one. I see one. He's faking it, Joe. In other words, why was Satan allowed access to the garden, or if you will, the box? Satan is allowed access. Does God place him in the box? No. He's able to get in the box on his own accord. That's Joe's question. Why? Obviously, Joe is a big fan of our Schrodinger's uh, Paradox series. I mean, my goodness, just like all of you. <laughs> God placed Adam into the box. He built Eve from Adam. He placed the two trees there in the garden. But Satan is allowed to enter. Now, some would say no. That Satan has no choice but to enter. I'm going to say that Satan's free will was not inhibited by God and ask why not. Now, I see the relationship between Schrodinger's mechanical device, the delivery of the poison, and Satan's delivery of the poison. So I see the similarities there. 
Again, some disagree that Satan's free will was not inhibited. They will insist that Satan possesses no independence of any level. That's very common, very uh, probably predominant view. And ironically, Satan also has the same view. The lie of Satan is, is that there is no autonomy, that he has it and you don't have it. That is the lie of Satan in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. So always take note of those who agree with you theologically. In this case, those who have the position that everything is, is uh, void of any will of any level. They are in perfect agreement and in cooperation with Satan's view. I think that would cause concern. If you believe there's no will of any kind, you are, a, you are right there with the evolutionary monists and right there with Satan. I think that you need to reassess. Just me. Anyway, okay, so. I would suggest that you approach this, why did God allow Satan to enter the garden on his own accord, under his own will, I think that the way to approach it is with the inverse. Instead of asking it that way, what would be the consequence, the ramification? What would happen instead if Satan were restricted from the God? What if God prohibited it? What would happen then? If you think that man and, and the woman would not, the woman would not take from the tree, do you have any basis for that? Do you know anything about women? Never mind. Because <laughs> either do I. But the joke just teed itself up, and I couldn't help myself. I was forced to tell it I have no free will. Try that in court sometime. Anyway, it defies common sense, doesn't it? What would be the consequence? What would be affected if Satan were not allowed into the garden. He could not enter on his own will. He could not go where he wished to go if he was prohibited. Uh, if you prefer this avenue, what would God be accused of if Satan were forcibly constrained from entering the garden? And who would accuse God besides Satan? Who's watching all of this? How many millions are there? Obviously, God knew the implications. See definition of omniscience. Therefore, another facet must be considered here. Overwhelmingly, Bible scholars have concluded that the tree of life, the tree of death, which is the tree of knowledge of evil, the tree of surely die. I call it the tree of death. Everyone has concluded that this was a test for Adam, a test of Adam, a test also for the woman. And it's one that demonstrated Adam's self-determination as well as his belief in God's goodness. However, with Satan's unfettered access also to the garden, it must be allowed that the garden presented Satan with a test also. So this wasn't just Adam's test. It's also Satan's test. That's why he's allowed access. Adam is the king of the second, of the organic Eden. 
I have two kings of Eden, as you know. Satan is the king of the first mineral Eden, Adam the king of the second organic Eden. And both of those are confronted with conditions that are going to illustrate truce. How do they respond? So don't look at the test of Adam as just for Adam. Look at the test as also a test for Satan, the woman's a key component. Don't relegate her to a lower status. But for today, reflect on on the simultaneous testing of both kings. There's distinct parameters here. In other words, is Satan's test the same as Adam's test? Because Adam's test is clearly a test of belief of God's goodness. And it's relevatory of his self-determination. And I submit that's not Satan's test. Ask another obvious question. Is there uncertainty in Satan's actions? Don't we love the word uncertainty? Uncertainty is a critical element here. How much uncertainty are in this, these tests, if you will? Schrodinger would expect nothing less but a discussion on the uncertainty of Satan. Let me rephrase that. Did Satan have the ability to abstain, forbear, to not attack the woman? Yes or no? Can, at this time, can Satan stop? Can he repent? Can he throw himself upon the mercy of God? Because if he can, then what is he? You should be able to answer that. Satan doesn't do it. He does not throw himself on the mercy of God. He does not refrain, resist Attacking the woman. Why does he attack the woman? What is the source? What is the anatomy of the attack of the woman? What's the first thing that Satan has to have to attack the woman? He has to be what? Tempted. There's the woman. She clearly is a vehicle. I can destroy the man. I can destroy humanity. All I have to do is prevail. So there is a temptation for the woman, but there's also a temptation for Satan. That is why he is allowed to the garden. But he does not stop himself. Is there anybody else involved in this? Of course there are. Millions and millions and millions and millions of angelic beings. And how about those that have chosen Satan at this time? Remember, there's a temptation of them too at some point. Where is that? They saw a woman. Genesis 6, absolutely right. And they were tempted. And they gave in to the temptation. Great evil resulted from that. 
Remember, this ends with Adam and the woman testifying against Satan at his trial. They're two witnesses. They are the two witnesses declaring Satan to be a liar and a murderer, and Satan is condemned on the basis of their testimony. And that raises even another more solemn question, the most solemn of the solemn questions. Why isn't God's omniscience acceptable at this trial? Because it does not appear that it is. I have to have two witnesses. This is the first time. Why must Adam and the woman testify? This is the first time that Satan is accused. And he is proven to be a murderer here, based on the testimony of these two. Both of them, you could argue, have been murdered. Why is this the first time, if I'm correct? Duh. God is not Satan's accuser here. The woman is, and then Adam is. Adam accuses him too. It's in the text. You will find it if you say, where is Adam's accusation of Satan? You will see it. He says it, what it is. This woman you have given me, that's an accusation against Satan. To repeat, why, and also a confession, why isn't God's witness character definitive here or even utilized? It's not. He's just the judge. Clearly, God is recused as a witness. Why has he recused himself? For the same reasons that Satan is allowed into the garden. See you in two weeks.